Many of you know that uh, we built a new home last year, and uh, there's nothing like moving into a, a, a new home. Everything is, is, is fresh and smells really good and new, and the, the, the paint and, and, and everything is still fresh, and the appliances all work like they're supposed to, and, and, it's, and it all goes really nicely. There's, there's no dust behind the, behind the doors or on top of the, the appliances or behind or underneath any of the couches. I mean, it's, it's all just great. But then as we've lived there for a little over a year now, things start to change, right? Like you may have experienced this in your own home. Things, uh, the new begins to wear off and, and you, you scuff the floors a little bit here and there and, and you see paint chips on things that were not there a year ago and the, the stainless steel fridge has fingerprints all over it and, and, and then something else starts to happen as well. You start to notice that things require a little bit of maintenance, a little bit of upkeep, right? And so you, you begin that list, the the gutters that need to be cleaned out, the, the hinges maybe that need a little oil, the, 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 the filters and the air conditioner, air conditioner filters need to be changed out, and the touch-up paint needs to be applied here and there. And, and so, but because we're such busy people, we tend to procrastinate, right? We, we make a list and we put it off, and, and you know that list I'm talking about, whether it's a physical list where you write things down or it's just the list in your head where you've got this long list of chores and honeydews that... You just really know you need to get to what you don't feel like doing today, but you'll get around to it. I'll get around to that thing. You guys are all looking at me like y'all are super spiritual and y'all don't have lists like that. Like, y'all, I'm the only one in the room right now that has that list. Um, maybe if you don't have the list, maybe it's your spouse that has the list. And Okay, now, now it's making sense. I see some wives bobbing their heads now like, mm-hmm, I've been telling him. We have the list because we're a procrastinating people. We, we put things off, and, 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 uh, and, and that's just that's what happens. Um, that thing that we'll get around to, that I'll fix that soon. Uh, this happened to, to Jess and I not, not long ago. Uh, we divide chores and different things around the house pretty evenly. And uh, taking care of Olive, we have a Yorkie. If you've ever been over to our, our house, she's about this tall. And, and she, she's Yorkie, so she has long hair, and you have to groom her. And grooming Olive is sort of my chore, and, uh, because, as Jess will admit, she's not too good at it. And, uh, and so that has become my thing, and, and Olive was getting long and, and needed a trimming. And Jess had been telling me, hey, you need to trim Olive. It's hard to wash her. Just, you just need to give her a little trim. And so I'd been putting it off. It was on my list, right? It was way down the list, but it was on the list. And uh, I'm having lunch with a, a church member over in Wake Forest, and I, I get a phone call from Jess, and I'm thinking, hmm, she knows where I'm at. I wonder why she's calling. So I kind of hit mute. Don't act like you haven't done it. You've done it. And uh, I get the second phone call. So I'm like, okay, it's an emergency. She's called twice in a row. So I answer. I'm like, hey, what's going on? And Jess is frantic on the other end. Oh, gosh, baby, you've got to come home. Something's wrong. You've got to come home. I'm like, what's wrong? She's like, there's blood everywhere. And now I'm in panic mode, like the, the blood rushes out of my face. I'm like, who's hurt? What's going on? She's like, I tried to cut Olive's hair. I'm like, mm. She's like, I need you to come home because I'm trying to hold Desmond and Olive's bleeding everywhere and I can't do it. I can't, can't fix it. It won't stop bleeding and I can't. I'm like, all right, I'm coming home. So I came home and sure enough, Olive was bleeding pretty good. She had nicked her ear pretty well. And, uh, and so I tried to help that whole situation. The worst part of this whole thing is that Jess used my clippers that I cut my hair with instead of the dog clippers. Um, <laughs> And I tell that whole story. Jess is not the bad guy in this story. I'm the bad guy in this story because I procrastinated. I put it off. I just said, I'll do it. I'll get around to it. I'll get around to it. And you know, today I would probably have a dog with a whole ear and a good set of clippers if I'd have just did the job, right? If I'd have did the thing. And, uh, and when we all have things like that, that we procrastinate. And it's one thing, right? If it's a leaky faucet 
or if it's a dog that needs grooming, or if it's some touch-up paint that's needed here or there. It's another thing entirely when it's our spiritual walk, when it's obedience to Christ that we're putting off. We're procrastinating. It's, it's a form of slothfulness. That's a Puritan term that was used a long time ago, but, but sloth, laziness, when it comes to the disciplines and the things that we've been called to be obedient in, it's not a, it's not a trivial thing. It's not something that we should put off. And so I think in our text before us this morning, we see a picture of Israel doing that uh, in, in the book of Joshua. But I also think we learned about six things that we're reminded of in the text this morning, uh, truths that we would do well to walk in. Uh, as we think about our, our lives and the obedience that we've been called to. So if you're, if you're new with us, we've been studying through the book of Joshua. We're in Joshua 18 and 19 this morning, and we're in a section of the book where the Israelites have conquered the land. The conquest has happened, uh, and even in verse 1, you see that the land is subdued, and, and Joshua has been giving out these allotments. The, the tribes have been receiving their inheritance that was promised generations before. And this morning, we, we find uh, another section of Joshua with a few more allotments. But six truths for us from Joshua this morning. The first one is in verse 1. We don't even get into the chapter, but one verse, and we see a truth that we would be reminded of for our walk today as believers, and it's this. We see a new day for Israel, and it points to a new day in our future. A new day for Israel that points to a new day in our future. Look at verse 1 with me again. It says this, Then the whole congregation of the people of Israel assembled at Shiloh and set up the tent of meeting there. The land lay subdued before them. So Israel's assembling here and their setting up of the tabernacle is a huge moment at Shiloh. It's a huge moment. It's an indication of a new day in the life of Israel. This is a turning of a page for them. If you remember in our study of Joshua, Gilgal has been sort of their home base. During all of the battles that they've been engaging in and all of the time that they've been in the land, Gilgal has served sort of as their home base. Well, now they're moving inward to Shiloh, about 10 miles northeast of, north, northeast of Bethel and about 20 miles north of Jerusalem. And this, this appears to be, from all that we can tell, the, the primary center of their worship of Yahweh during the time before Israel had kings, right? So before the monarchy, this is where the, the tabernacle was. This is where worship happened. This is where God met with his people in the tabernacle. And so this is a new day for Israel, but it reminds them of an ancient word, right? So going back, you can turn there if you want to, but in Deuteronomy 12, Moses told Israel, way back in Deuteronomy, God told Israel through Moses of some very specific things that would happen concerning their worship when they got into the land, right? When they, when they go into the land and, and, and engage in battle and win the promised land, there would be some very specific things that happen in their worship. And so just, just jogging our memories uh, from Deuteronomy 12 as we studied there uh, a few years back. In Deuteronomy 12, verses 1 through 7, uh, I'll summarize those verses. We won't read them all. But it, the idea there in verses 1 through 7 is that they would go in and they would tear down Canaanite pagan places of worship, the holy places, uh, idol worship in the land that was, that was already there, that already existed. And in doing that, they would, they would build a worship center unto Yahweh in the land where God alone would be worshipped and not these pagan gods. And so to summarize verses 1 through 7 of chapter 12 of Deuteronomy, it would be that they would worship faithfully. No longer these pagan gods uh, receiving worship in the land. It's God himself, Yahweh, who would receive worship. So they would worship faithfully. Then you get to chapter 12 uh, of Deuteronomy, verse 12. I want to read this to you and listen carefully what the Lord says will happen concerning their worship when they get into the land. It says this in verse 12. And you shall rejoice before the Lord your God, you and your sons and your daughters and your male servants and your female servants, and the Levite within your towns, since he has no portion of the inheritance with you. 
So once you get into the land, you're going to get rid of those other idols, those other gods. You're going to worship God alone, faithfully. And then in verse 12, you're going to do it joyfully. You shall rejoice before the Lord your God. It's a joyful worship. So we already see these two traits, faithful worship, joyful worship. And then in verse 10, again, Deuteronomy 12, says this, When he, that's God, gives you rest from all your enemies, and so that you live in safety. This idea, three traits of their worship. They would worship God alone, faithfully. It would be full of joy. Their their worship would be joyful, and it would be secure. It would be safe. Their enemies have been subdued. They've conquered those that once inhabited the land, and their worship is secure because there's not a threat from outside force. So don't miss these traits. Joyful worship, faithful worship, and secure worship. Because now you get to Joshua chapter 18 where we're at in the text this morning. Joshua 18, verse 1, they've established a place for the tabernacle in the promised land in Shiloh. That's incredible for us, even if we miss it at first. That root word in the Hebrew uh, for Shiloh is, is tranquility, peace, shalom. God is doing exactly what he said he would do. And that's important for us. It marked a new day for Israel. Their, their worship of Yahweh is no longer moving around as they're in the wilderness. It's stationed in Shiloh, in the tabernacle. That's where God's meeting with his people. And their worship should be joyful. It should be faithful unto God, and it should be secure as other, as other nations have been subdued. And this day, though, this day in Israel's worship of Yahweh was not the ultimate new day. It was a new day, to be sure, but it was not the ultimate new day in the worship of, of Yahweh. You see, a Jewish man from the New Testament in the book of Luke has a glimpse of the better new day or the ultimate new day in the, in the worship of Yahweh. And it was coming, uh, and in the book of Luke we get a glimpse of it, right? And that person is Zechariah, the, uh, the father of John the Baptist. Luke says that he was full of the Holy Spirit. He was filled with the Holy, Holy Spirit and he began to prophesy. And in Luke chapter 1, verse 68, this is what Zechariah said. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel. For he has visited and redeemed his people, delivered them from the hand of our enemies, security, that they might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. Here's what John the Baptist's daddy was saying. There's a day when Yahweh will be worshipped faithfully, joyfully, and securely. You see, Shiloh was never meant to last. It was never the ultimate worship of Yahweh. Israel would be led back into disobedience and sin. Therefore, they were not secure. They would be attacked eventually and brought back into slavery. They wouldn't worship Yahweh faithfully. They would go after false gods. And their joyfulness would, would, would turn to ruin as they, as they gave back into those false idols and false worship. But Zechariah saw it. You see, in the New Testament, he saw through Jesus the coming of the Messiah, the the Son of God, that there was a day coming when Jesus would be lifted up and would receive due worship with all faithfulness and genuine joyfulness and security because there's no more threat of sin, there's no more corruption, there's no more devastation. That day was coming, and it's only possible through Christ. So where do we find application for, for, for us in this, right? So you see from Deuteronomy that it's predicted. There's a glimpse of it at Shiloh. And then Luke's, in, in Luke's gospel, Zechariah sees it, right? He gets a full picture of it. So how do we apply this? Well, this morning, friends, our brothers and sisters in Malaysia, the Church of Christ, the people of God in Malaysia are worshiping this morning not securely. In fear that any, at any given time someone could burst through the door, seize everything they own, separate them from their families, or in some places in the world even, even kill them on the spot for worshiping King Jesus. But friends, there's coming a day. There's coming a day for them when they can worship with all joyfulness and no fear. 
That's a good day. That's great news. For us this morning, as the church here in, in, in the Bible Belt, where we don't have those insecurities, where we don't, we don't have that fear, there's coming a day, though, when we can imagine, we can picture, we can have hope of coming, a coming day when we can worship joyfully without the threat of sin, right? Vying for our attention and for our devotion. Temptation pulling us away from, from King Jesus. That's great news. That's incredible news that that day is coming. Israel saw a new day in their worship by setting up at Shiloh, but it points us not to Shiloh, but to our eternal home with King Jesus. Second reminder that we have in this text, second truth I think we can learn here in Joshua 18, we're given a constant reminder of our inclusion into the global body of Christ. We're given a constant reminder of our inclusion into the global body of Christ. We see as the writer of Joshua continues to to stress the importance of all 12 tribes receiving their share of the land inheritance, right? We saw it back in chapter 13. We see it again here this morning, and, and it's what I'm calling, uh, borrowing from a commentary, tribal mathematics, right? Tribal mathematics. The writer of Joshua in verse 2 says this, There remained among the people of Israel seven tribes whose inheritance had not been yet apportioned. So then, uh, in verses 3 through 7, following that verse, Joshua does some tribal math for us. Again, we've seen this already, but he does it again. In verse 5, he points out that Judah already has a place in the south. If you look at your text with me. Uh, in verse 5, he points out that Joseph is, has a place in the north, the tribes of Joseph. And remember, those are really two tribes, Ephraim and Manasseh. Um, and, and half of the tribe uh, of, of, of uh, Manasseh is east or west of the Jordan. Then you have Levi, verse 7, who doesn't get a part of the land. Because they have God himself as their inheritance. They're the priestly tribe. Um, Then you have in verse 7 again, two and a half tribes east of the river Jordan. That's Reuben, Gad, and the other half of Manasseh. And so if you add all of that up, if you're doing the math there, and then the seven that have not received their part yet, that's a whopping 12 tribes. Tribal mathematics. What in the world? Why would the, the writer of Joshua go through all of those details And that laborious work of of calling roll again, right? He did it in chapter 13, five chapters ago. So so why do it again? Why remind us of that breakdown? It just seems kind of tedious doing that roll call all over, like the the mom, right, that has has several kids. And uh, especially if your mom or you, as a mom, named your children all with the first uh, same letter, right? Like my mom did. And she, she, you get mad, she's mad, she's frustrated, somebody's done something uh, boneheaded, and she begins to call roll, right? Like Matthew, I mean, Matt, I mean, Marissa, all y'all get over here. Y'all probably all are guilty. Probably all y'all need a spanking, so get over here. And then you really know she's, she really knows she's mad when, uh, when she gets to calling her own siblings' names, right? That's how you know mama's really mad. When she calls you her brother's name, it's like, ooh, you're so mad, you just went back 20 years to when you were fighting with your siblings. Uh, the roll call, the roll call. It, he gives us the whole thing again. He, he walks us through every detail and the, the way that every tribe has received their part or will receive their part. So why would Joshua do the roll call? Why is it that important? Because Israel needed to be reminded that they were a part of a larger people. That collectively, not as individual tribes, but collectively they were the people of God. And we need that reminder today, church. Church family, God's kingdom, the family of God is bigger than Poplar Spring Baptist Church. Newsflash. God's kingdom is bigger than, 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 than North Carolina and the United States. We're a part of a communion of saints that spans throughout all of history and encompasses the entire planet. And we all face that temptation of thinking that, that we're it, right? That our little corner of the map is what we need to be worried about and concerned about and striving in and working towards. But believers from every nation, tongue, and peoples will share in the Father's wealth. There are believers all over this world, every corner of this world that are co-heirs with Christ and with you. 
That's incredible news that we need to remember. We have to get outside of our little bubble and care about brothers and sisters all over the world that have the same father that we have. We'll share all, et- all eternity with this family. Uh, why in the world would we act like they don't exist? Or, or worse, like we couldn't care whether they exist. We get, we get to spend the entire uh, rest of time with these brothers and sisters. Let's start practicing now. Let's, let's, let's do a little rehearsal now. The New Testament also emphasizes this in John chapter 1. John chapter 1 verse 16 says, The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And then verse 16, John says this, For from His fullness we have all received grace upon grace. We and all in that verse means that every person who's in Christ is in Christ and has received grace upon grace, and it doesn't matter skin color or economic status or gender or language or past sins or history. If you're in Christ, you're a part of this global family known as the people of God. And then in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, 1 Corinthians 12, verse 13, For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slave or free, all were made to drink of one spirit. Friends, the scriptures are not denying Christian diversity, but it is certainly condemning Christian snobbery. That we would, we would not care about whether other peoples are walking faithfully to the Lord, are being fed the word of God, are being trained up in righteousness. We've got to get out of that, that kind of mindset. Number three. Third truth I think we see in Joshua 18. There's a continual warning about the sin of procrastination or laziness or slothfulness. There's a continual warning here. Uh, we hear the primary warning in these two chapters as Joshua accuses these uh, accuses the unset, unsettled tribes, these seven tribes, of developing a dangerous laziness when it came to possessing the land. Look at verse 3. So Joshua said to the people of Israel, How long will you put off going in to take possession of the land, which the Lord, the God of your fathers, has given you? Other translations that you may have may read, How long will you delay? Instead of how long will you put off, how long will you delay? The verb there in the Hebrew uh, is, is, is of, the, of the tense that it would mean that there's not just a one-time delaying. It's not like you just delayed one time. But there's an ongoing habit of procrastination when it comes to this area of obedience. It's actually the same verb that God uses back in chapter 1. Joshua chapter 1 verse 5 where God tells Joshua, I'll never let go of you. I'll be with you every step of the way. Except for here with Israel, they're constantly letting go. It's an ongoing letting go. Uh, for Israel. And we've already been told this is a crucial time for Israel, right? Verse 1. We've heard it read a couple times now. The text tells us that the land was subdued before them. They'd won the victory. This was their opportunity. They needed to press in and secure the land while it was subdued, while the backbone of the Canaanites was broken. To seize and secure the land, possess and own and cultivate the land instead of letting it slip away. And so Joshua makes a plan to awaken them from their sluggishness. He says, give me three men from each of the seven tribes that remain. So there's 21 men. And the idea would be that they would go out and survey the land and report. Give me the boundaries. Give me the picture of the land. Give the, the full geographical, topographical. Tell me what it looks like. And we're going to come back together. And among these 21 men, we're going to cast lots before the Lord, the text says. And, uh, and, and we're going to go and possess it. And so it's like, it's like baby steps. It's like Joshua's he's leading them into this faithfulness. It's, it's baby steps, but it's moving from inactivity to, to faith in action. And perhaps we need to hear this word this morning, church, church family. We need that word too. You may be hearing and think, man, my walk with the Lord is just stale. It feels stagnant. My, my faith is, is, is often just, just wavering. I feel lethargic, slothful. 
Maybe you're here this morning and say, I haven't engaged in the mission of God in so long, I can't even remember what it feels like. Right? I can't even remember that feeling when my heart was beating in my chest because I knew I was doing something hard for the Lord and it took faith, but I knew I was walking in faith. I knew I was about to open my mouth and speak something to someone that the Lord had made it clear that he'd put them in my path. And my, my heart's racing because I'm excited because of faithfulness and obedience, but also because I know what the Lord can do. You're like, Man, I don't, even, I don't even remember what that feels like anymore. In church family, God's promises are not sedatives, they're stimulants. God, God gives us promises. He gives us his word and it doesn't cancel human responsibility. It motivates us to action. It motivates us to obedience. Ellison, in his commentary here on this text, he says this, The slackness that Joshua points out may well have been due to an unwillingness to settle down. It was fine to have a promised land, but this reality showed the need for learning new skills and engaging in hard work. And for many, that is the disappointing side of God's gifts. They're always given that we may serve him all the more. Even his rest is linked with the idea of a yoke. Have you ever thought about that? And he points us to Matthew eleven twenty eight. 28. He says, come to me. This is Jesus speaking. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. You will find rest for your souls, Jesus says, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. He's talking to these, these religious people. He's saying, quit trying to earn it. Quit trying to earn your, that's, that's, you'll never do it. That's, that's awful. That's draining. There's nothing fulfilling in that, and it'll lead nowhere. But take my yoke upon you. Even in the gift that he's talking about, it's it's a joy to serve the Lord. So where's God calling you to do hard things, church family? What what things can you think of? Even in your heart right now as I say that, you're thinking, gosh, I know that's what he's talking about. I know that's what the Holy Spirit has put up on my heart. I know that's what he's been calling me to obedience in this year or this week or this last month. Ask the Holy Spirit to point to areas of your life. Maybe it's something you're called to do. Maybe it's just something that inner, disciplinary, a discipline of the Lord that you've been neglecting, you've been slacking, and you know that the Lord's calling you to faithfulness there. Ask him to show you those areas. That's, an answer. That's a prayer he loves to answer. And then walk in obedience. Not that you would earn his love and favor and his merit. That's already been accomplished for you in Christ. Because you want to serve him. Because he's worthy of our, of our worship. It may not come at once either. Here's the thing, too. I think we get discouraged because it may not come at once. But God never told Israel it would. In fact, he said the opposite. He said it's going to be little by little that you possess the land. It's going to be by continual plotting that you would go in and cultivate the land, and it'll be little by little that you begin to possess it. The fact is they were doing nothing to possess it. And it may be the same way for us. You may not move from, uh, from a sloth to a cheetah in 24 hours concerning the disciplines of God, concerning obedience to God, but are you moving toward likeness? As you look back on 2018 in January of last year, are you more like Jesus today than you were then? Are you, are you more obedient to the word of God than you were then? Are you in more fellowship and communion with the Lord now than you were then? What's he teaching you? What's he showing you? What's he, what's he moving you towards in the Holy Spirit forming Christ in you? Number four. Number four. We're shown the necessary authority that our lives are to be lived under. We're shown the necessary authority that our lives are to be lived under. Note how carefully Joshua places this land division under a necessary authority. Three separate times we read in these verses that these 21 men are to write up a description of the land. They're to, they're to go and survey it. They're to bring it back to Joshua. And then it says this, that he's going to cast lots. But it's not just that he's going to cast lots. It says very specifically three times he's going to cast lots before Yahweh, before the Lord. Look at verse 6 of 18. I will cast lots for you. Here before the Lord our God. Verse 18, I mean, uh, chapter 18, verse 8. I will cast lots for you here before the Lord in Shiloh. And then verse 10. 
And Joshua cast lots for them in Shiloh before the Lord. As you read the word of God, as you're studying scriptures on your own, in your, in your home, in your quiet time, listen for repetition. Because it's there for a purpose. It's usually it's, it's meaningful when something's repeated like that. And the clear purpose here is to show us that everything done in this narrative, in this scene with Joshua and these remaining seven tribes, was done under the authority of God's word. You say, well, Matt, it sounds like they were casting lots. Isn't that sort of like shooting dice? They were just kind of leaving it up to, to, to random chance. They're kind of gambling to see where the, you know, where the dices fall, if you will. So, yeah, it, it does sort of look like that, except for that God ordained it to be done that way. And he purposed it. That was the method that he told them to, to carry out. He said, well, isn't that a bit risky? Doesn't it seem like that would be a risky way to, to, to divide up a, a, a land? Well, not in the least bit. If God can split the Red Sea and allow his people to go through on dry land, only until the Egyptians begin to go into the sea and then collapse the walls of that water on top of them, then, friends, he can orchestrate these, these lots to be cast in the way that he wants them to be cast. Or if he can hail down ice missiles on a, on, a, on a fleeing army and penetrate them and kill them but spare his own people, he can move every little piece of hell where he wants it and direct it where he wants it. And friends, this is no challenge for God. This is the method that he ordained because this is what he wanted, how he wanted to do it. And think about this. If Joshua were the one randomly selecting these allocations of land based even upon his own judgment, his best judgment, this is what I think should be good, this is what I think should be right, then there's no end in complaining, right? Think about that. There's no end in complaining and quarreling and discontentment over these, well, his property line's bigger than mine, and well, theirs is longer, and they have more bodies of water. And well, There's no end in complaining, but if God is the one who's sovereignly orchestrating these allocations, then his authority can't be thwarted. We trust the Lord as he's laying this out before us. And the heart of the matter is the exact same for Christians today, though it may not be with real estate. Sometimes it may be. Only when we're convinced that our time is in the hand of the Lord, Psalm 31. Only when we're convinced that that God really does hold our lot in life, Psalm 16. Only when we're convinced of those truths will we be kept from bitterness and discontentment. I wonder why you walk around dissatisfied and discontent. Are you really convinced that the Lord holds your lot in life? Are you really convinced that every second, every moment of your life is in his hand? Do we have that kind of faith and trust in our sovereign God? Do you believe that that your circumstances at this moment, at this moment, are lived out under his sovereign authority? There's something strangely comforting in knowing that my present lot is exactly what the Lord has intended. Maybe the way I got to it was strange, and maybe the way I got to it was even through, through bad circumstances or awful things that were done to me, but right now, right here, the Lord has me here, and he's sovereign, he's in control. And this lot doesn't catch him off guard. Number five. Number five, the fifth truth we see in the text. We observe, and then I put parentheses in my notes, we observe finally a completed allotment. It's like we've been doing this for a while. We, re, we observe finally a completed allotment. Not going to spend a lot of time here, though the majority of the verses in these two chapters deal with this allotment. Uh, we're not going to spend a lot of time here uh, simply because there's a lot of place names and it's, a, it's, it's borders and boundaries and, and those sorts of things. I want to make a few points and then, and then move on. I want you to see, the, even as you look at your text, see the divisions here. Benjamin's lot, you see Benjamin there, twice as long as far as the verses that describe it, twice as long as the others, and we're not really sure why, verses 11 through 28. Simeon uh, is unique in that it included two towns within Judah's borders. That's different. Verses 1 through 9 of chapter 19. Zebulun, hey, look at there, we get a shout out. You know we were in the Bible. Zebulun, in chapter 19, verses 10 through 16, receives uh, its allotment. 
Issachar in 17 through 23, Asher 24 through 31, Nephtali in 32 through 39, and then Dan, the tribe of Dan in 40 through 48. And again, these are just names and places, and, and you may go home and read this to yourself, and man, whoo, getting a little sleepy. This doesn't make sense to me. I don't understand how this is important. But remember, let me remind you that every tribe having its own piece of earth was a huge fulfillment of God's word. We've been moving to this point since the book of Genesis. That what God said, that they would be a, num- a numerous people as, as the sand is upon the seashore, and that they would have a land flowing with milk and honey. That's the two promises God gave Abraham way back in Genesis. And we've been moving to this point ever since. And it's happened. Friends, these are not dull verses, though they may, they may seem that way if we read them. These verses are a new chorus in the old hymn, Great is Thy Faithfulness. When the Israelites read these verses, yes, God has done it exactly as He said He would. These verses were, were reason for shouting. Number six, the sixth truth we see here. We're encouraged by the life of a faithful servant of God. We're encouraged by the life of a faithful servant of God. We see it in verses 49 through 50. Let's read together. When they had finished distributing the several territories of the land as inheritances, the people of Israel gave an inheritance among them to Joshua, the son of Nun. By the command of the Lord, they gave him the city that he asked, Timnath-Serah, in the hill country of Ephraim. And he rebuilt the city and settled in it. Now there's an incredible symmetry here that we would miss if we don't think about the big picture and what we've been studying the last several weeks. Um, as we begin with the allotments, right? So you have the Jordan River, there's some tribes east of the Jordan, and there's the tribes west of the Jordan. As we begin studying those west of the Jordan, that was chapter 14. So try to jog your memory all the way back to chapter 14. It began with a positive example of one individual. Do you remember who that was? Caleb. Yeah, it starts with Caleb, and even though he's an elderly man at this point, he goes before Joshua and he says, Hey, Joshua, the Lord's allowed me to come into the land. Give me my mountain. I want my mountain that the Lord had promised. Even if there are giants in that land and on that mountain, I'm ready for it. Even as an elderly man, I'm ready for it. The Lord's been faithful and he's been good to preserve me. Let's have my mountain. So you have that positive example of Caleb. And then you see, immediately following that, the negative example of the Joseph tribes, Ephraim and Manasseh. You remember them, right? We studied those guys a couple weeks back. And they complained about their land, right? Their, their initial complaint was, the land's too small. It's not big enough for us. We're a numerous tribe. But really, as you begin to dig into the heart of the matter, you see what it is. They're afraid of the big bad Canaanites, right? And their iron-clad chariots. And the reason they were afraid of them was ultimately because they doubted God, They doubted what the Lord had told them, that you will go and possess the land. Because they doubted God, they were disgusted by his gift. So you saw the the positive example of Caleb, the negative example of Ephraim and Manasseh, and then now this morning you get to chapter 18, and and you watch this mirror image, this, this, this beautiful symmetry that we have this morning, in the negative example of the seven slothful tribes. The seven tribes that were too lazy to go in and possess the land, and then it's followed up at the very end by the positive example of Joshua who again, as an elderly man, is faithful to go in and not just own the land to possess it, but to rebuild the city, it says. And so here's this, this, this picture. You have these two sturdy bookends of faithfulness in Caleb, chapter 14, and of Joshua, chapter 19. It's the beginning and the ending of the allotments of these tribes. And then in this example of faithfulness, we can't help but to remember the other time that Joshua and Caleb were held up to us as an example of faithfulness. If you know your Bibles, Numbers chapter 13 and 14, right? You remember their story as as younger men. They were sent out, those two guys, with ten other spies. Sounds awful familiar to the the text we're reading this morning. And as spies, they go and look at the land. They hadn't crossed the River Jordan yet, but they go and look at it. And they come back, and the ten spies say, man, we can't do it. 
There are giants in that land that would squish us. I don't know if that's a word. They'll they'll totally destroy us, and there's fortified cities, and there's huge walls. We can't take it. And Joshua and Caleb come back, and they're bumped up. Like, are you kidding me? We can absolutely take it. God has said we're going to take it, and let's do it. Let's move forward in obedience. Let's go and take the land. And as a result, those ten spies, along with everyone in their generation who followed their uh, unfaithful example, those ten spies and everyone else would not get to enter the land. They died. God said that would be their punishment. They'd never get to see the land of promise because they didn't trust the Lord. And yet, Joshua and Caleb were the only ones from that generation to get to go into the land. And chapters 14 and 19 show us that they didn't merely just go into the land, get to see it for a second, and then die. They actually went in and were able to possess it. Even as elderly men, they settled and cultivated land. And so these two verses, verse 49 and 50, are not merely a useless tailpiece on the end of this story. It's music. These two verses are, are the part of the song where, where the, the piano hits the key change and it goes into another stanza of how great thou art. God has been faithful to preserve these two men. Joshua and Caleb are, were not great. It wasn't that they were sinless men. It's that God is great and he preserved these two men from, from giants like the Anakim. He, he preserved them from chariots clad with iron. He preserved them from high water, high walls. He did it. He kept them alive and he was faithful to his promise. And here's the reality, church family, and here's we're trying to bring this thing. If God were faithful to fulfill his promise to Joshua and Caleb, then we can be certain that he will be faithful to another of his promises, perhaps the greatest promise he ever made. And for that, you go back to Genesis 3, to the garden. When Adam and Eve disobeyed God and sinned, and God makes this promise. He tells the serpent who uh, tempted Adam and Eve, he, he goes to the serpent, he says this in Genesis 3, I'll put enmity between you, serpent, And the woman, between your offspring and her offspring, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. You read that in Genesis 3 and you're like, wait, 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 wait. Who is the he? Who is the one who's going to have his heel bruised but who's going to crush the head of the serpent? Oh, friend, that one is Christ. That from the very beginning, from the Garden of Eden, God promised that one day the true and better Joshua would come and he would be able to do what Joshua could not accomplish. He led the people into the land, but he couldn't preserve the land. He couldn't protect the land. He couldn't make them be faithful. He couldn't keep them from from being conquered from outside uh, threats. But Jesus would do what Joshua couldn't. And by his death on the cross, Satan would think, I've won. I've won. But actually, all he did was bruise the heel of our king. And Jesus, through his death on the cross, the true and better Joshua would crush the head of the serpent. By his death, he lived a perfect life. And by his death, he died the death that every one of us deserved. He died the death that you and I deserve because of our rebellion and sin. And through his death, he gives us the life that he lived. He gives us the perfect righteousness of God. That we can stand before the Father completely redeemed and forgiven. No sin. Friend, that's the gospel. That Jesus took your place. That he came to deliver you and lead you into a land that will never end. Remember that new day we were talking about? That new day is the one he'll lead you to by his blood. This is the picture we see in Joshua. And if, and if God is so careful, get this, if God is so careful to make sure that every one of these property lines came to pass uh, in the Middle East for a group of nomadic Hebrews, then friends, you can bank your eternity that he will make sure the promise that he's made to you, that he can crush the head of the serpent, it will come to pass. He will deliver you to eternity. So call on him today. And why would he do that? Why would he do that? Think about it. Why would he do? Why would he sin? Why would God the Father send Jesus the Son to die the death that we deserve, to pay our penalty? Friends, so that one day, one day, we can worship faithfully. 
We can worship joyfully and we can worship securely for all eternity. Gathered around his throne, seeing him face to face. And so in just a moment, Michael and Sammy are going to come and we're going to respond. We're going to respond to the text we've heard, to the word of God. And this morning we're going to worship through communion around this table, around the Lord's table. And so let me remind you of a couple things as, as Sammy and Michael come. Let me remind you of this. This is what we're doing in this moment is celebrating the truth that you just heard. That Jesus died the death you deserved. That he took your sin. And through his death on the cross, you can have life eternal. And so when we see this bread and this cup, that's what we remember. His broken body and his shed blood for you and for me. So this morning, we don't get to just sing about the gospel. We don't get to hear it read and, and hear it preached about. We get to see it. He gave us this as a sign so we can see with our eyes what he's accomplished in his death. And that's good news. And so as we pray, they're going to sing a special song to remind us of what we're celebrating. And take this time and pray. Ask the Lord to reveal sin in your own heart, something that may be unconfessed, something you didn't even know you were, you were sinning in. And repent. Give it to him. Come to him anew and say, God, I'm yours. Whatever you want, I'm yours. And repent. We don't want to take of communion unworthily with sin in our heart and in our life. And as you're praying, if the Lord reveals you that you have fault with a brother or sister, go and take this time. Instead of communion, go and make it right. It'd be better for you to, to make that right and ask for forgiveness and be reconciled to a brother or sister than to take this table unworthily. And then as you're praying and as the Lord has done business in your heart, you come. Don't wait on me to come back up. Don't wait on our elders or our deacons. You can form two lines down the middle. There's bread on each side. There will be cup, the cup in, on both sides. You can take it here and you can go back to your seats. You can come as a family or as you can come as individuals, but come when you're ready, when the Lord has done business in your heart and you prepared your heart before the Lord. And come and take the broken body and the shed blood of Christ and remember what he's done on your behalf.